Good morning, College Park. This is, uh, we're setting some things up here. This is the uh, visual aid this morning. You'll find out what that's all about. For those of you over there who can't see this, it's this. For those of you who can't see, it's that. For those of you wondering what's on the back, it's this. Okay, so there we go. I thought about having Sam uh, hold the Jesus can sign, but that just was going to be a bit distracting. So there we go. All right. Very good. I invite you to take your Bibles this morning and go over to Colossians 1, verses 24 and 26. Uh, you might be looking up here at me and going, he doesn't have a tie on. Okay? <laughs> Don't freak out. Okay? Uh, I had one on the first service, but after the first service, someone came up and gave me a gift this morning. You guys ready up there? And uh, they gave me a gift that I wanted to be able to, uh, for you guys all set? Okay, so check this out. You see that? Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that cool? So I'm wearing Jesus came by my heart today, okay? So that was so special, so neat, so cool. And if you want one, they're like 90 bucks, okay? No. So <laughs> I can tell you who made it for me. And I was like so juiced about that. I was like, I'm going to put that on. So, you know, we'll get the tie in a couple weeks from now, okay? So the uh, reason is, is that we're starting a new series. The reason why I say a couple weeks from now is we're starting a new series uh, within Colossians called Jesus-Centered Ministry. Next week, uh, Nate Irwin is going to be taking verses 24 uh, 28 and 29, I believe. And then uh, Joe Bardemus is picking it up from there. I'm going to be gone for two weeks. Uh, remember that uh, illustration about the newspaper, the fire pit, the cup of coffee, and my nirvana? Yeah, that's coming like in 24 hours. So uh, that's where we're going to be next two weeks on our annual family vacation. And uh, just looking forward to be able to connect with my kids, my family, my wife, some relatives that camp with us and also with a biography on George Whitfield and a book called Christ-Centered Preaching. So it's going to be a great time. So you can uh, just pray for us, and we will miss you and be back here on uh, July 14. All right, so Colossians 1.24, that's where we are this morning. It's already been read, but I read, but I want to reset the equation here, um, focusing our hearts on a pretty tricky text today. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. Would you pray with me? Lord, we're now on our ninth message in this book, and it feels like in one respect we just scratched the surface. In another respect, Colossians has become a familiar friend. This book has helped us to get the supremacy of Christ right, and oh, how we have needed that. We've really needed to know what it means for you to be core. Thanks for the great lessons like Jesus can, and how that's just becoming a, a new flag to wave, a, a new moniker on a shirt to wear, a new theme for us to embrace. And So, Lord, as we take the next step in understanding how that applies in our lives today, I want to pray that, Lord, today would be a real turning point for some people who are really hurting today. I want to pray, Lord, specifically for people who just came to church today with an empty heart. They came here because they're hopeful that you're going to speak to them. And, Lord, I pray you would. What a privilege to be able to try and declare your word to their hearts. And I I don't want to mess that up or get in the way. I just want to... Let the word go 
and let Jesus be clear. I want to be able to make you evident Christ and at the end of the day to have people leave this place going, boy, Jesus, you really can. And so we ask your help today, Jesus, to make that a reality. We ask you, Spirit of God, to open our minds and hearts what you want to say to us. So remove the clutter, the callousness, the fog. Help us to see clearly who you are. You haven't changed since the last time we've opened your word or been here on the Lord's Day, but we have, and we, we, we need to reorient back to you. So help us today, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. When Jesus calls a man, he bids him come and die. When Jesus calls a man, he bids him come and die. These words were written by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a Lutheran pastor who died in World War II, executed for his faith and his attempt to right the wrongs of Nazi Germany. In his book, The Cost of Discipleship, Bonhoeffer highlights the value of gutsy, non-cheap grace. And he calls, essentially, in this book, us to a, a life of sacrifice, of dying, to take up our cross and follow Jesus. And I find that statement to be rather interesting and a bit troublesome. And here's why. Because I don't know about you, but the 21st century American version of Christianity that I see and feel and battle against doesn't fit very well with that statement. Instead, it usually feels like Jesus in our culture is portrayed as the one who can fix and fulfill your life. As the one who is the, it can fulfill your greatest desires, your needs, rather than a call to self-sacrifice, a call to self-denial, or a call to a rugged Christ-likeness. Even our tracks, although well-meaning, sometimes capture this. For instance, I know of great tracks that I have used that say something like Steps to Peace with God or How to Have an Abundant Life. I know very few tracks whose titles are Come and Die. You want something to read? No. And I know at one level why we do that. But at another level, it makes me a little bit concerned. All you would need to do is turn on your television. If you're like me, you just have rabbit ears and turn on Channel 40. See, Christian TV is weird Christian TV at times. And, and if you watch long enough, which my wife rarely lets me do, she's like, turn that, it drives her crazy, understandably, you would hear eventually a message that relates to self-fulfillment, how to be able to get God's blessing, living a blessed life, or as one church moniker would read, discovering the champion in you. And that's covered under the banner of Christianity. Very little talk about denying ourselves, taking up our cross, and following Him. In fact, I think that we could take Jesus' command to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Him. I think we we rather reword that in 21st century America, and it would sound like this. If any man would be my disciple, let him deny himself when he feels like it. Take up his cross if it isn't too heavy, and follow me as long as it gives him what he wants. This is part of the cultural air that we breathe, isn't it? It's all over the place. Some of you are wondering, good grief, what's wrong with Mark today? (laughs) There's nothing wrong. It's just that fundamentally I fight this battle within my heart all the time to embrace a call to come and die when the world in which I live and the desires of my heart want a life with Christ that is easy. Fulfilling all of my greatest needs and desires. And this idea of Christ somehow calling me to die is really hard. 
Because I live in, and frankly, like a culture that's anti-hardship, anti-suffering, anti-inconvenience. I get frustrated when I have to wait in line at McDonald's for longer than seven minutes. I like quick answers, quick service, and fast solutions, and Google has not helped me with this. I sit at the computer. It's amazing. I can find that statement by Bonhoeffer. I know it's out there. Within three seconds, I have it in my hands. And what I find is a Google version of Christianity where I want immediate answers and I want them at my fingertips. The problem is, is that's not how God works. Contrast to this this approach to life that we have in our culture, we contrast that with the call to Jesus, call of Jesus, where he promises hardship, where Jesus says, if you will follow me and be my disciple, you will experience tribulation, where he warns his followers that they will be hated like he was hated. In the midst of all of Jesus' words is this understanding that to live in the world but not be of the world means that you will suffer at the hands of the world. And that's not very popular. But I would tell you when that stuff comes your direction, you and I need to be ready. And that's why Paul in Colossians 1 makes the turn from an exalted view of Christ. I mean, some of the greatest verses in all of the Bible about Christ and who He is, we've covered those. And now this morning we're looking at the way in which that view of Christ helps us and transforms how we view suffering. Some of you have come to worship this morning and you are in the midst of a crucible of hardship. And I want to be able to speak a word to you about the season that you're in and the fruit that could come out of your life, the the aroma of what happens when you're in the crucible. Others of you do not know yet what it's like to suffer, but you will. And my role is to prepare you for that day. Listen, when it comes. Because the time to help people understand how to make it through suffering is not when they're in suffering, but rather to teach them how to suffer in advance of it so that when trouble comes, you will know the deep-seated commitment to Christ at the core that leads to hope, joy, and contentment. This speaks to people in the middle of cancer, folks with horrible difficulties with their children, job losses, people cleaning up from a flood in Columbus. I mean, this is the real stuff where we live. How do you do life when life gets tough? And our title this morning is this. Suffering with Him makes the Word heard. And here's the point. This is what I'm going to argue the whole morning. It is that in the moment of suffering and trial, when you are under the vice, that is when the Word of Christ is clearest from your mouth and heart. That when you live in the midst of suffering and pain, that is when Jesus can be most glorified by not just your words, but by the incarnational truth that you live. And that's how Christ becoming core now transforms how you view suffering. So this morning I want to give you three things to think about as it relates to how do we view challenges and difficulties. How do we think about suffering? If Christ is the core, assuming that you know that you don't make him the core, he is the core, then how does Jesus as core transform your view of suffering? Here's how. First, verse 24. Notice the Apostle Paul's perspective. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. This verse 24 marks a transition from theological stuff to a little section, um, four weeks here, of what 
Paul indicates is the heart and soul of his ministry. So he's focusing from great Christological stuff now to how he serves and his philosophy of life. And that little phrase, don't blow by it, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. It's a really important phrase. Because what happens is that Paul experiences many hardships and difficulty. Suffering was a part of his life. And Paul says, I rejoice in my suffering for your sake. Notice first that his focus is not on himself. Got a word to speak to those of you in pain. This could be the most self-centered time of your life, if you're not careful. And there will be very few people who will call you on it. No one likes to confront a grieving mother. No one likes to tell a person battling with cancer, I'm sorry, but you're sinning. Because it's almost as if hardship or pain gives us a pass on righteousness. We call it venting. We, we say things like, it's okay to be angry with God. Really? Where in the world does the Bible say that? And what Paul says is, this is not just about me. So what I want you, the first battle line, the first line to draw, the first battle that I want you to fight when suffering comes is to resist the urge to think this isn't fair. And then to say what's even worse, why me? That word rejoice is an important word in the Bible. It's used 74 times. It refers to one's orientation, how you view life. It's a lens through which you see the world. It could also be translated as joy or joyfully content to be well, to be happy. What we find in the Bible is people are happy about weird things. At least weird from the world's perspective, not weird from our perspective. We see Peter and John who were persecuted, and in Acts 5, verse 31, or 41 rather, it says that they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. In other words, they loved Jesus so much that when people reviled them and persecuted them because of Jesus, they thought it was incredibly joyful. So they didn't rejoice in the pain. Or the opposition didn't rejoice in the fear, but rather rejoiced rejoice in the fact that they were considered worthy to suffer with Christ. Or First Peter chapter 1 and verse 8, where Peter describes that as you go through trials, that there will be this joy within you that is inexpressible and filled with glory because you know that this trial is producing in you something that's far more valuable than anything that you could ever imagine. The word happy, though, doesn't help us. We, we, we think of joy and rejoice like happy. Happy is not what the Bible means. For instance, um, happy is something that our kids feel when they get something they like. They're unhappy when hard stuff happens. We were at a drive through the other day, and uh, uh, the car in front of us, uh, somebody handed through the drive through window a happy meal, right? Parents, you know what those are, happy meals? Well, we have rarely bought in Happy Meals for our kids because, frankly, they're just too expensive and they don't make them happy long-term, right? So um, so that's what we just, you know, it's, it's not happy for us, not happy for them, okay? So, so they, and Jeremiah is in the car and he sees the Happy Meal go, he's like, what are those, you know? So, and, and Sarah was like, that's a, that's a Happy Meal, honey, if you... If you, make, you don't know what a Happy Meal is? I, I don't know what those are, Mom. And I don't know if he was pulling a big scam or what, but he... Um, she said, oh, honey, you've never had a happy meal, you know? And I wasn't in the car at the time, so I was in the car behind her, so she told me this later. So she got a happy meal, and she gave it to him, and he opens it up, and sure enough, there's a toy inside, and he's what? 
He's happy because inside the box is a little toy and he's all excited about it. Not broke four minutes later, but he was still happy because when he looked inside, he got the happy meal. And McDonald's is exactly right. You buy this little package and your kids are happy. Well, some of you, when it comes to the word happy, that's how you think of your life. I opened up my life and I found cancer. I'm not so happy. I opened up my life and I found a marriage that's falling apart. There's no, no hap- Here's what rejoice means. It means that you open up your life and even though there's hard stuff in there, at the foundation of who you are is Christ. And you open up the box of your life and although you're not happy in the sense that this is fun, I mean, don't be like one of those believers like, whoa, cancer's fun. It's not fun. There's a difference between happiness and rejoicing. Rejoicing means that there's a God-centered view of what's happening to you, so there is indomitable joy. The sense of God's working this out. I don't know all the reasons why. I don't know what all the, the point of this is. In fact, I've just been okay with the fact that I don't know why. I've gotten over the why question, and listen, I've anchored myself to the who question. Because who is much more satisfying than why. And that's what Paul says. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. I mean, this is unbelievable. Paul sees his suffering as having everything to do with the glory of God for the sake of other people. He is utterly not self-focused. And the first battle line when hard things come is to fight the battle of realizing this is not just about me. Look at 2 Corinthians 1. Turn there. Because here's an incredible Parallel passage. Second Corinthians 1. You might want to write cross-reference, a little CF in the side of your notes, and Colossians 1.24, reference over to 2 Corinthians 1, verse 3. Notice the parallels. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort. Notice the Godward focus. Then get this who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. I mean, this is unbelievable. It is that God allows affliction, even causes affliction, for your good and His glory in your life so that as you learn the comfort of God, you will be able to comfort others in any affliction. So God's purpose in some of you experiencing hardship is so that you could be able to glorify Him and be a minister to others. The question is, are you okay with that? Or do you got to have some bigger picture plan? Like, no, that's not big enough, God. Like a million people have to come to Christ to, to be worthy of this hardship. Are you okay with the fact that God may very well allow hardship and suffering to come simply so that you could be a help and an encouragement that He could model on your life the platform of the beauty of trusting in Christ? Now look at verse 5. For as we, are, as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and your salvation. Look at that. It means that there are people in this audience today who are purposely being afflicted because God wants to comfort others and bring other people to Christ. That is a completely other-centered view of suffering. And then he goes on to say what you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. So the first battle here at College Park is to resist the urge to become self-focused. You've seen it, haven't you? People who grieve can say the most horrible, wicked, sinful things and no one around them calls on it, calls them on it. 
Or pain produces this inward focus where now it all becomes about you. And the battle line is that when Christ becomes the center, we need to battle the urge to become self-focused when pain and hardship comes. After the death of our daughter, my wife and I were talking about this dynamic. In fact, at one point I, I said to her, "Hun, you realize that no one is going to confront you on anything while you're grieving. And it's a scary zone to be in. Because when you're grieving and hurting, everyone focuses on you and how they can help you, not necessarily how they can help you become more like Christ. And I wrote an article that wasn't published anywhere just reflecting on this called Unique Temptations in Painful Valleys. I wanted just to think on a written form about what's going on inside of my heart and the dangers of this. And I don't usually quote myself in my sermons, but um, I, I'm going <laughs> to I'm gonna do it today, okay? So um, for those of you who get the sermon manuscripts every Sunday, by the way, those are out in the, um, on the usher's desk in the visitor center over there. You could actually come in with a full manuscript prior to the Sunday morning message. So the article is in the back, and you're more than welcome to read it after the message, okay? After the message. Here's what I said. When you're in pain, nothing else matters. Everything stops. And for a season, everyone and everything revolves around you. And at first, it is very comforting. But if you're not careful, it will be addicting. I felt that. Freedom comes by rejoicing, rather, in the opportunity to magnify God in your darkest hour. So in the midst of worst, God can shine best if you will let him. So don't allow your pain to turn you inward and toward yourself. The pull is strong, but shallow. And so my call in that article was to embrace him, not yourself. It's like I get this image of in pain of what I was doing at times was I was like hugging myself. It doesn't work. Or people hugging me to hug myself. And you need to embrace him by getting the focus on him and others. That's the first battle line when it comes to temptations in the midst of trials. So mark it down somewhere in your mind and heart. You may need to store this up later that when difficulties or trials come, the first battle is this is not just about me. Let go of the why question, embrace the who question, and instead say to Christ, I don't know why, but I do know that this is about you and about others. Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Second thing he says is that my suffering then has or could have an eternal purpose. Now, I say could very intentionally because there are some of you who are going to waste your suffering. You will. God gives you a gift of suffering, and because it's all about you and how much pain you're in and you can't get out of a self-focus, the reality is you end up wasting the opportunity to make much of Christ in that affliction. So the second rather amazing thing he says is in verse 24, where he says, And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. Now, I hope you read your Bible with a level of inquisitiveness and ask yourself some questions. In fact, I would encourage you, when you're reading the Bible, talk to the Bible. Now, do it like in a quiet room where no one can hear you, right? Unless they think you're crazy. But talk to the Bible. Because there's some questions that you ought to ask yourself in that text, right? He says, I am filling in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now, think with me. What questions immediately come to your mind? In fact, I'm going to ask you. I want you to actually verbally talk back to me about what questions would need to be answered. 
What was lacking? Bingo. So what? Christ was lacking? What else? What's that? Why is it lacking? Yeah, what's the problem? What else? Good, there we go. What's it lacking? A young preacher here. Good. What's it lacking? See, those are all great questions, and those are really important questions. Because the text seems to indicate that there's some deficiency in Christ's afflictions, right? As if somehow I complete them, or it says I fill them up. Well, what does that mean? Well, first, let me tell you what it cannot mean. Because the context of a passage always drives its meaning. Don't separate the verse out from where it is. And verses, uh, chapter 115 to 23, rules out any sense that Christ's death or his life or his suffering was somehow insufficient. Verse 20 says, he's reconciled all things, making peace by the blood of his cross. So there's no way that Christ could reconcile all things to himself as if, if his sacrifice wasn't sufficient. Nor could it mean that Christ's afflictions somehow needed to be added to as if they weren't complete. Further, how in the world could I, as a sinful human being, add to the afflictions of the sinless Son of God? I think that Christ suffered at a whole level that we can't even fully understand, both as a man, but as the sinless man. So the idea that I'm going to somehow, that Mark Rogop's going to somehow add to Christ's afflictions, I'm going to fill it up, that I'm going to be somehow a partner with him in that suffering, whew, that's a little beyond my ability, not only to fully understand, but even think that somehow I could be a part of that. So if that's what it can't mean, because I'm not really even worthy to complete his suffering, what does the phrase really mean? Let me boil it down very simply and then show you where I get this from. It means that Christ's sufferings and what he is as core and savior and supreme, that Christ shares in the afflictions of his people when they suffer, and that when we suffer, our sufferings connect us to Christ, because we share in a common suffering, and it connects us to others. In other words, the sweet pain of suffering, and here's the hope, is that it brings you closer to Christ, and it communicates something powerfully to others. Suffering models a raw Christ-likeness. It causes us to cling to Him as we share in hardship, but at the same time it causes us to platform who Jesus is. So we become Christ-like in two ways. One, we grow closer to Christ and we declare Christ to people. So you need to know that Paul's ministry, and this is where I get this from, not only involved preaching, but it also involved living out the centrality of the gospel, which resulted in many hardships and persecutions. And even though he had never been to the church at Colossae, he saw his afflictions as for their sake. And Paul, in his fidelity to Christ, in his hardship-enduring heart, caused the church at Colossae to listen to him. I mean, do you want to listen to some guy who's had spoon-fed life? Or do you want to listen to somebody who's endured a hardship and mockery? That's the guy that you want preaching to not someone who's had a life of ease. You want someone with ethos, with credibility, because he's walked the hard road. And that's what Paul does by sharing in the hardness of being a committed follower of Christ and persecutions and suffering. Paul then is able to declare Christ and be able to let that church know what Christ-likeness really is. You've probably heard the phrase before regarding weightlifting and training. No pain, no what? 
gain. Right. Well, for Paul, when it came to hardship, his pain created their gain because they could see the reality of Christ in him. You might say, well, how does that share in Christ's afflictions? Well, Paul heard this firsthand. On the road to Damascus, Jesus shows up and says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting what? Me. Right. And Paul could have thought, persecuting you? I'm persecuting your church. I'm not persecuting you. And what Jesus is saying there is something very important, College Park. It is that when his people suffer, Jesus suffers. So it's not so much that we're somehow joining him in his sufferings like we're coming to him. No, it's the reverse. Rather, in our suffering, he is coming to us. It is that we share in Christ's afflictions in that Christ shares in our hardship. When Jesus' people suffer, Jesus suffers. So why does Paul talk about suffering this way? The reason is, and it's really important, is that Paul wants to connect our suffering, or rather his suffering, to Christ and its ability to communicate to others. To be able to share in Christ's afflictions means that in my suffering, I show people what Christ is like, and I show them the power of living a Christ-like example. So I embody Christ in my sufferings. I've said this like six different ways to say the same thing. And I thought this is what the text meant, and just to be sure, I checked with John Piper. I didn't call him, but I checked a sermon. And I don't usually do this because it drives me crazy to read a Piper sermon before I preach mine. And then it's even worse to read it after because then I'm like, oh, I missed that. But in this case, he agrees with me, and that really made me feel good. Christ intends, he writes, for the afflictions of Christ to be presented to the world through the afflictions of his people. You see that? They're not going to touch Jesus, but they could touch you. They're not going to see Jesus with their eyes, but they can see you. God really means for the body of Christ, the church, to experience some of the suffering he experienced so that when we offer Christ of the cross to people, they see the Christ of the cross in us. Oh, now it makes sense to you. Great. Well, you should have said that. Well, I can't say that. He can say that. I can't. He's good. I'm not. So he, there's this sense that Christ now is in you the hope of glory. That's 127. Christ in you. And suffering has a way of making that really clear. And that's why you will waste your suffering if all you focus is on you. And you run around town and life and various counselors asking the question all the time, Why me? Why me? Why me? The question we ought to ask is, why not me? And how much, once you give it to me, can I magnify your glory? So this could radically transform your view of difficulties and sufferings. It means that you actually embody Jesus to people when they hear about your suffering. The people are watching you when hard stuff happens. Now those of you who are looking at the text very intently would go, well, wait a minute, perhaps you might think that this is only about persecution. You might say, well, I, I don't... I'm suffering, but I'm not being persecuted. And I think this passage applies not only to those being persecuted, but also to those who endure hardship and sufferings when they do so in the name of Christ. And the reason I think that is 2 Peter, 2 Timothy, rather, 3.11, Paul talks about his hardships, and he talks about persecution and suffering. 
I think one of the mistakes that we make is to somehow take persecution and put it off in this category and then take the things that we live in over here and say, well, that doesn't relate when the reality is what Jesus is calling us to is to realize that our sufferings have eternal purposes when our focus is on making Christ the core and living through those sufferings by making much of him. So does it apply to persecution? Absolutely. But I also think that this text has great application to people who have cancer and bad marriages and really tough things. And instead of you saying, why me? Now you're saying, God, I want to be able to make much of you through this trial. Let me show you this. Let me apply this to cancer. Let's say that over the last few weeks you've determined in your soul, look, I want to live out a Jesus-centered life, but here's the problem. You have terminal, serious terminal cancer. So you battle through the chemotherapy, you battle through all the side effects, the enormous fears, the doubts, the struggle, but now you are doing it with a new level of focus. You are going to chemotherapy and you are going to take those drugs and use them to the glory of God. So for you, the battle now is twofold. It's not only to survive, it's to survive and savor Christ all the way through. That is not easy, it's hard, but you're trying to do it. And as you do this, you are being watched. You won't do it for that reason. You don't savor Christ because you know people are watching. No, you just do it because He's awesome. He's the Savior of your heart, the, the center of your soul. And as you're doing that, people are watching you, and they are seeing Christ displayed right in front of their eyes. Your kids are watching, your neighbors are watching, your spouse is watching, and as they watch, they learn, and as they learn, they see Christ being made much of in your affliction. Uh, some of you might still say, well, that's still not like being persecuted. It's not the same as a missionary being persecuted in a foreign field, and I would say to you that's true. It's true. I don't want to make the same, say it's apples for apples. However, I think that we would say, that a missionary serving in a foreign mission field or a pastor serving in a pulpit who gets cancer, who fights for joy and continues to serve Christ and keeps preaching his heart out and trying to win people to Christ even though he feels crummy and feels like he's going to die on the inside, he chooses to serve in spite of his illness. My point would be is that there's no difference between that kind of service and a really sick mom who gets cancer, fights for joy, and continues to serve Christ as a mother despite her illness. So this morning I'm arguing passionately that you not separate the normal existence of your Christ-centered life from those of us who are in professional ministry as if we're in a different category. We are not. And when God calls you to suffer in your area, don't make the mistake of thinking I'm not able to take the beauty of Christ into the world unless I'm persecuted. No, you take the beauty of Christ into the suffering world that you're in and make much of Him. Because your suffering could have eternal purpose. So Paul's point here is what suffering displays, not the source of it. What it displays. Or let me give you another example. Consider a wife who chooses every Sunday morning to come to church alone. And her husband not only refuses to come with her, but he does little things to make it known he's not supportive. For instance, he only snuggles on Sunday mornings. Little things that he does to make it known that he doesn't want her to go. And then when she decides to go and get ready for church, he's obviously frustrated. His verbal silence, his size, his emotional distance, they're all little subtle weapons that he uses to try to get what he wants. And then every once in a while he even throw in a zinger like, I don't know why you go anyways, it doesn't make any difference in you. 
And then at church, she has to navigate the, the kind but painful questions like, I, I don't see Jim anymore. Is everything okay? And every time that kind question is asked, her heart just sinks. And then she's in worship and she experiences the beauty of God's presence and she hears the word and she leaves and she knows that although she has a marital union to her husband, her heart and his heart are going further and further apart, that she's growing and growing without him. And as she drives home, she knows he won't even ask how worship was. And so with that huge burden, she walks up to the front door, a heart loaded with disappointment and Christ-centered pain, and she prays, Jesus, help me love my husband. And she walks through the door and with Christ-exalting love, with this tone, says, Honey, I'm home. When inside of her heart, she feels like she's dying. Don't tell me that's not suffering for Christ. That woman is showing Christ to her husband despite significant pain. And sure, she's not going to be martyred for her faith, but she is suffering. And that suffering has eternal purpose. And so I want you to know today, whatever your lot in life, that your suffering could have eternal purpose and could have eternal value if you will make the choice to not have it be about you and instead ask yourself the question, how can I make much of Christ through this? Third thing and last Verse 24b, my ministry then is to make the word heard. Of which, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. This verse says that there's a mystery hidden for ages. You know what that mystery is, College Park? That mystery is the gospel. It is that the gospel has now been revealed. It's now the gospel has been made clear. That thing that the Old Testament saints used to look in and wonder about, now it's clear. And Paul says, this mystery, which is now revealed to the saints, he says, I have become a minister. So Paul has this clear sense that God was working in his life and called him to a particular ministry. And in fact, God said these words to Ananias in Acts 9.15 about the Apostle Paul. He is a chosen instrument of mine, to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, and I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Paul knew that his ministry involved not only the declaration of the word, but also real-time suffering, big-time hardship. And his ministry was to make the word of God fully known. And the way that he made the word of God fully known was not only by what he said, but it was also by the suffering he endured. And I want you to hear this, that ministry is not just words, it's words and life. That the most powerful message you may ever have is not just the word that you say, but it's the way you platform on, you, you, the way you platform the gospel on your life, especially when you're suffering. There's no way you could separate Paul's hardships from his message. They went together. And I think there's no way you can separate the man from the message ever. Paul's ministry was to clearly communicate the gospel and to have an indomitable perseverance in the midst of suffering. So that no matter what happened to him, the gospel kept coming back. No matter what happened to him, Paul continually made his trust and his hope in Christ. And this church is what happens when Christ becomes the core. 
It means that you believe in your heart that He's not only sufficient to save you from your sins, but He is sufficient to be trusted in the midst of every season, especially hard times. And that is what the world notices. They notice a life so rooted in the gospel that it weathers the hard storms of life. That if Jesus is really as worthy as we say that He is, that in the midst of difficulties and hardships, that's when we grab a hold of Him and say, I will not let go of you. Some of you remember the, uh, the childhood toy called Weebles? Remember those? Weebles, Weeble, but they what? Don't fall down. So while I'm preparing for this message, I just have this image of Weebles. So I got like the biggest Weeble I could find. And my image is this. You've got Jesus can as your moniker in your heart. This, this fundamental belief that I can't do it, but... Jesus can. I can't make it through my life. I can't make it through my marriage. I can't make it through cancer. But I believe deeply within my heart that Jesus can. And that indomitable perseverance, that message that you declare, keeps coming over and over and over. No matter how many times you take a hit, that message keeps coming back. So no matter how many times cancer comes, the message, Jesus can, comes back up. And I want some of you to see yourself like a weeble. You take a hit and the enemy hits you, but the message keeps coming back. And the people at your workplace, they see you and they see all these hits that you take one after another and a marriage problem and all sorts of financial difficulties. But the reality of your life is no matter how many times you get hit, you keep getting back up and saying, Jesus came. Jesus came. And the testimony of your heart is not just that you said it once. Anybody can say it once. It's the 15th and 16th and 17th. It's the 100th time. It's 50 years of saying as the moniker of your life, Jesus can, Jesus can, Jesus can, so that your children, when they sit at your graveside and they reflect on your life, they will say, look at all the hardships our dad endured, all the difficulties our mom faced, but the one thing was nothing ever knocked them down because the message came back up. Jesus can. Your ministry is to make the word heard. And by having Jesus can and the message of the gospel be the thing that becomes the standard bearer truth of your life in the midst of all sorts of storms, your life, listen to me, will preach. Your life will be the kind of platform upon which Christ can make himself heard. People don't want to hear the truth of the gospel from silver-spooned, easy street people who just had an easy time through life, they want to hear about people who found the rugged reality of finding Christ sufficient even when the bottom dropped out. People who said, yeah, this is hard, but you know what? It's not about me. My suffering could have eternal purpose in my ministry. My ministry is to take this cancer and stand up on top of it and say, Jesus, you can it's to take the hardship of my finances, it's the loss of a job, and stand up on top of that altar and say, Jesus, you can. It's to be able to take the difficulties of a wayward son, a bad marriage, and all sorts of problems in our home and stand up and say, Jesus, you can. No matter how many times I get hit that I keep coming up and saying, Jesus, you can help me. And when that becomes your philosophy in life, let me tell you something, the effect of that is that this little thing becomes more than just a little placard you're wearing a shirt or something you put on a little punch dummy, it becomes the testimony of your soul. And when that happens, the effect is you transform how you think about suffering. You don't say, oh, bring it on like I want it. No, 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 no. No, some sort of arrogant, I'm bigger than this attitude. No, 
Rather, it means, Jesus, when you choose to allow difficulty in my life, I will choose to trust you and make it a platform upon which the word of God is heard. So, Lord Jesus, help us to transform our view of suffering. There are some today who feel like the little visual aid on the platform, like they just keep getting smacked and smacked and smacked. And today you need to help them, Lord, because not because I'm requiring you to, but because they've got nothing else that's going to help them. And so I pray that you would, by your Spirit, just pour not only grace into their hearts, but, Lord, help and a sense of hope again. That they could have a ballast of the eclipsing love of Jesus in their soul that would cause them to be buoyed in the midst of very rough seas. Lord, I pray that, Lord, for the 15th, 16th, and 17th knockdown, that you would help them in your power to get back up and say, Jesus, you can. The first time to say it's easy. More than 10, 15, 20, that's tough. And then, Lord, I pray for anyone here today who has been knocked about because you're trying to get their attention, because they want, because you want to have your son be at the center of their heart. Lord, no more suffering. Please open their eyes today. Help them to get the message that you want to say to their hearts, that unless they receive Christ, they'll never be free from their own dark heart. So, Lord, give us strength for hard days. Thank you that when you bid us come, you call us to die. And that you gave us the greatest example in the world as to how to do that. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Just stand please with me as we're dismissed. The book of Jude is a book on contending for the faith. And I want to dismiss you with this text. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory and majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.